From Goldman Sachs Research, this is Allison Nathan. Welcome to Top of Mind, a podcast that explores macroeconomic issues on the minds of our clients. The topic of this episode is buybacks, the practice of companies repurchasing their shares from the public markets. In 2018, U.S. corporate buybacks hit an all-time high. This sparked a heated public debate as Wall Street and Washington clashed over the use of corporate cash. Take a look at the today's New York Times because Senator Chuck Schumer and Bernie Sanders, they wrote an opinion piece calling for limits on corporate stock buybacks. Buybacks have been in Democrats' crosshairs for a while, but now a prominent Republican is jumping on the bandwagon as well. Senator Marco Rubio is out with a new proposal today. Many people have weighed in on the debate, including Goldman Sachs' current and former CEOs. Mr. Blankfein framed buybacks as something that boosts the economy and jobs. David, thank you so much for joining Absolutely. us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. You know, companies are stewards of capital for their shareholders. They need to invest in their businesses. Now, for some perspective, buybacks have been on the rise for the past couple of decades, but really took off last year after Congress passed the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. That legislation gave U.S. corporations an incentive to repatriate profits they'd been holding overseas. So practically speaking, that translated into a surge in cash sitting on their balance sheets. And this is where we get to the heart of the debate. Is buying back shares a good use of this excess cash, or could corporations be spending the money more effectively elsewhere? As rumblings from Congress in support of a curb or even an outright ban on buybacks are turning into actual proposals, this question is top of mind. What became really clear as I delved into the debate is that there are some very strong and very different views on the topic. I'll start with that of William Lozanek, who's a former professor of economics at the University of Massachusetts. He's also a vocal critic of buybacks. He argues that returning cash to shareholders comes at the expense of investment and innovation, and he believes you can see a multi-decade shift in corporate priorities by looking back at how we got here. Hi, Bill. It's Allison Nathan from Goldman Sachs. So why don't we start? The first question I'm interested in hearing your response to is, you know, why have buybacks become such a popular tool for U.S. companies, you know, over the last several decades, and what implications has this had? So there was really a major transformation in the ideology of corporate governance that occurred in the 1980s that was a part of a larger change in the politics and economics of what was going on in the U.S. economy. On the economic side, there were increasing challenges to corporations, in part because of conglomeration movement that occurred in the 1960s and then it came unwound in the 1970s where there was this really beginning of what I would call financialization of buying companies and thinking you can manage them by the numbers and that led to people say well you know let's just bust up these companies let's take the money out of these companies they're not investing very well and the other thing was Japanese competition so that also fit into the notion of well companies aren't investing properly and just take the money out and distribute it elsewhere. The other thing was the election of Ronald Reagan on a platform of deregulation that had a major change in bringing free market economics into policy. And something that wasn't well known was the adoption of November 1982 by the Security and Exchange Commission of Rule 10B18, 
which I call a license to loot. It was a rule which basically said that companies can buy back on any single day through open market repurchases and be protected by a safe harbor against any charges of manipulation of the stock market. And buybacks tend to be done, contrary to what some people believe, but they tend to be done when prices are high, not when they're low. And this fits in with this notion that companies are competing to keep their stock prices up. And so that, as basically the companies became evaluated, which wasn't the case coming into the 1980s, but became increasingly the case in the 1980s, really as everybody went lemming-like toward this notion of companies should be run to maximize shareholder value, buybacks became a favored way of doing this. And so that's what we have today. It's worth noting that Bill's views are pretty controversial. Many people argue that buybacks have become more popular for the simple reason that they're just a more flexible way of returning cash to shareholders than dividends. And when looking at the numbers, David Costin, who's our chief U.S. portfolio strategist here at Goldman Sachs, finds that even as companies have returned more and more cash to shareholders, their spending on growth investment was actually higher. Here's David during a recent CNBC interview. Look at what's been happening in terms of the share of cash spent by corporations. Every single year, for 30 years, companies have directed more cash to investing for growth, capital spending, research and development dollars, spending on M&A, more investing for growth than returning cash to shareholders. Then you look at what is the growth as a result of the tax reform that took place last year. And what we find is the increase, and certainly there's been an increase in cash, money's been brought back onshore. Right. 70% of the growth in buybacks came from just a few stocks, the top 10 stocks. And so you see Apple and Oracle and Qualcomm, and they had a lot of cash, they brought it back, and they've distributed more of that to shareholders, which had then been reinvesting. I also reached out to Aswath Damodaran, professor at NYU Stern School of Business. He agrees that buybacks are not cannibalizing investment, and he makes the case that returning cash to shareholders actually leads to more productive investments than we would have seen otherwise. Thank you so much for okay. agreeing to do this. You're welcome. So is there any reason to be concerned, though, about the trend of companies investing less as opposed to you know, returning more cash? The companies that are buying back stock are investing less. But this is one of the great myths about buybacks, that the cash that is used for buybacks. Last year, for instance, U.S. companies bought back $800 billion worth of stock. The question I ask people is, where do you think the $800 billion went? Did it go into a black hole somewhere? Did it go to somebody's house? It basically went back into the market. It's not that companies are investing less. It's different companies are investing. And you could argue that that is actually the better use for the money. If you restrict buybacks, you're going to get Europe. Because Europe is full of walking dead zombie companies that continue to invest back in bad businesses. I think it's healthy for an economy when companies that don't have investments give the cash back. The mythology that if you buy back stock, there's less investment just takes the first part of that equation and misses the rest of the equation. What about people who say that CEOs aren't looking hard enough for good investments? They should be finding more opportunities to invest cash than they are. You can look as hard as you want. You can make the next CEO Steve Jobs. You can't change these businesses. One of my favorite devices for talking about companies is a life cycle. Companies are born, they grow up, they become mature, then they become middle-aged, and then they get old. 
so when you look at the companies buying back stock, many of them are aging companies, companies in the late stages of their life cycle. You can't reverse aging. These companies, even if they looked harder, are not going to find investments. Are there some companies that are buying back stock that shouldn't be? Absolutely, because that force of inertia is a big force. If you've been buying back stock, if suddenly your business changes and you have good investments, because you're so used to buying back stock, you might continue to do it. That does trouble me, but that requires a scalpel, not a bludgeon. So to try to protect yourself against those few companies that do stupid things, you shouldn't be using a bludgeon and stopping buybacks across the board. Another question at the heart of the debate is whether buybacks hurt American workers. Lazonic thinks that they are the ones who should be getting a larger share of company profits, not shareholders. And there's many, many studies that show that the companies that pay their workers better get better productivity and can remain competitive. Their profits might not be as high. And they might refrain from doing things like stock buyback. But their productivity is higher and often they outcompete the companies in the same industry. And if you can get high productivity out of your workers, employees, by paying them more, by training them, by getting them to work together, all the things you need to transform technologies, access market, produce competitive products, I think the evidence will show that your profits are going to be higher in the future. But the, the biggest part is when a company makes profit. It worries about, can we keep the people here and motivate the people and reward the people who help generate the profit, and that's your employees. It recognizes that. That's not a matter of, well, it'd be nice for workers to have more pay. It's, in fact, they're generating the value in these companies that is being taken away from them, and that has all kinds of consequences. This is a major problem and a fundamental problem, in fact. Demodaron has somewhat of a different take. He worries that any attempts to constrain companies' buybacks could actually end up backfiring on workers. Can't companies be investing more in their employees? Can't they be paying more? Can't they be providing better benefits? That's a fair question. The question is, you know, we said many of these companies have bad projects because they're not competitive. They can't earn a decent return. So it's true, in the short term, if you paid your employees more, they're going to be happier, but you're actually going to make yourself even less competitive. So it's actually going to create a vicious cycle where initially wages are going to go up, but they're going to hire far fewer people. They're going to find even fewer projects to take in the future. You might actually set these companies in a cycle where they shrink even faster than they're shrinking right now. You can't have it both ways. You might have some very well-paid employees who remain in the company, but it's going to be a subset, a much smaller set of employees, and it's going to be at the cost of actually employment at a larger scale. You can't say, I want the unemployment rate to be low, I want new jobs to be created, and I want you to pay $25 an hour to all your existing employees. It's not going to happen. And that brings us to some of the most important potential consequences of any policy aimed at curbing buybacks, which is that it could actually make it harder to start new businesses, lead to fewer jobs, and worsen income inequality. Here's Stephen Davis, professor at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. We know that stock buybacks aren't an area of research for you. But there's a narrative that by allowing companies to bring cash back into the U.S. and then restrict them from giving that cash back to shareholders, essentially by banning stock buybacks, companies will basically, they'll invest more, they'll build more, they'll create more jobs. 
Can you give us a sense, given your work on business formation, job creation, where that narrative could be right or wrong? Yeah, I think the narrative's largely wrong. The first big piece to understand is that stock buybacks and bans on stock buybacks don't have much effect on the amount of investment in the economy. What they do affect is where that investment goes. And to see that point, think about, suppose I'm an investor and I've got $100,000 in my stock portfolio because that's how much I want to put in stocks. If one of those companies buys back $10,000 worth of my shares, that doesn't change how much I want to invest in stocks. So I'll take that $10,000 and invest it in some other stock. It doesn't affect the level of investment in the economy. What it instead does is trap funds, trap resources in companies that don't think they have great uses for it. Because if they had great uses for the funds internally, they would invest it internally. What we'd like the economy to do, what we'd like the capital market to do is to take the amount that investors are willing to invest and allocate it to the best uses, the uses that are going to drive innovation and job creation and growth. Okay. The second big point about this, and this is directly related to much of my research and what people often fail to appreciate, is there are enormous differences in productivity and investment opportunities across firms. So we really want the capital to get allocated to where it can do the most good in terms of new innovations, new jobs. And we interfere with that process, we undermine it, when we ban stock buybacks because they interfere with the ability of the economy to allocate investable resources to their best uses. So if you look at this type of resource reallocation that's being proposed, again, restricting the use of cash, do you think that's going to improve income inequality, worsen it? How do we put it in the broader context? So there are implications of these issues for inequality of income and of opportunity. And in this regard, let me make one point. Younger and smaller businesses, they have a tendency to hire younger and less educated workers. Let's think about what that means. That means if we ban stock buybacks, for example, we're forcing that capital to stay in mature, typically larger firms. Now, as I just made the point, mature, larger firms tend to hire more experienced, more educated, more skilled workers. So if we really want to provide good job opportunities, good earnings opportunities, for people at the lower end of the earnings and skill distribution, a great way to do that is to facilitate the creation of new jobs, the expansion of younger businesses and new businesses. So I think the role for policy is create that favorable environment and provide the foundation for that kind of growth and development to happen. And Damodaran agrees that banning buybacks would likely have unintended and unwanted consequences. Here he is again. And so what would happen if buybacks were restricted? How do you think companies would respond? All companies would love it, especially older companies. They'll sit on these huge piles of cash and with no good use for them and tell you, hey, nothing we can do about it. You know who else would love it? Bankers, because now that cash will be burning a hole in your pocket and you have to do deals. And so if you're doing this to punish bankers, 
they're going to end up being the beneficiaries of this process because all these old companies with a lot of cash will have to spend the cash. And guess what they'll spend the cash on? Big acquisitions. And guess what happens in your big acquisitions? It's a mother load of all deal making. So if you pass a law against buybacks, I can almost promise you that five or ten years from now, there are going to be unintended consequences that you look at and say, I didn't see that coming. But you should have, because in a sense, when you take a big action like that, there are always going to be consequences. And let's not forget the market consequences. According to Goldman Sachs strategists, another likely outcome of banning buybacks would be lower and more volatile U.S. equity markets. That's where we'll leave it for this episode. So far this year, buybacks are continuing their surge, even as calls from Congress to implement a ban are trickling in from both sides of the aisle. With so much to consider, ranging from an outright buyback ban to leaving the trend unchecked, it's clear that the debate around buybacks will remain top of mind. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part or disclosed by any recipient to any other person. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any recipient is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that recipient, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.